Hello, I'm Michelle LaDuke Catlin. Welcome to episode one of season one of Trude Up, the podcast that invites you to be the change. I suffered with chronic fatigue so severe that I could not work, could rarely socialize, and could barely think. A walk up my country driveway was an achievement. I lived in pain, exhaustion, and often in despair. It was so all-encompassing that I couldn't see a way out. I just wanted someone to fix it or tell me what to do. But it wasn't until I took full responsibility for my own health until I started doing my own research, asking the right questions and learning through trial and error that I began to understand my own body and then to heal. I not only gained energy and physical strength, but I gained something far more valuable. I learned that no one, not even the people who love me, could save me. In retrospect, it was preparation for the last four years. I think it was this life lesson that had me start paying attention to what it was about the people I admire that had them take responsibility not only for their personal lives, but for the lives of others. Two years ago, when I went to Ottawa to write about the Freedom Convoy here in Canada, I was struck by the dignity and power of ordinary people standing up for what they believe in, for freedom of choice, of bodily autonomy, of expression, as the daughter of activists, I'd been to many protests in my life, but none like this. As with most protests, people were using their anger to do something to have their voices heard. But unlike most protests, the people at the Freedom Convoy were expressing their frustrations with positivity, with kindness and generosity. Instead of the uneasy feeling that can often arise at a rally, the atmosphere in Ottawa was jubilant. The experience was one of camaraderie, gratitude, and even love. Canadians were embracing each other, literally and figuratively. Regardless of the government's draconian measures, people felt free. We were experiencing our own agency. I began an inquiry into how people could become inspired enough to step over their fears and experience the power within themselves on the other side of those concerns. A few months later, on the day I marched into Ottawa with James Topp and his team, I was struck again by how ordinary people can do extraordinary things. I started having conversations with people who were stepping out of their comfort zones to true themselves up to their greater selves, their deeper selves. You might even call it their divine selves. We each have that divine spark, but not all of us true ourselves up to it. It's easier to go along with the crowd to be guided by convenience and comfort, to comply. But at what cost? We lose a bit of ourselves every time we are not true to our values, our principles, our morals. It is scary to speak truth to power, but my first guest did just that and continues to do that at personal cost, great personal cost. Tom Marazzo was one of many people at the center of the Freedom Convoy in 2022. Like so many people in recent years, he was thrust into the spotlight during Canada's largest peaceful protest. 
And on this anniversary of the enactment of the Emergencies Act here in Canada, on this anniversary of one of the darkest days in our young history, we talk about what it takes to move beyond the personal and stand up for something greater than ourselves. For those who don't know Tom's story, I asked him to start our conversation with a little background about how he ended up at Canada's largest and most historic protest. I'm, I am retired military. I retired from the military in 2015. And then I went back to school and I did a four-year degree in software. And then right after soft, uh, my software degree, I started teaching at a college in Ontario. And it was honestly my dream job. Everything was great. I was teaching in class for the first six months. COVID hit. We quickly transitioned to online teaching. And so I did that for another year and a half. And in September 2021, the college I worked at came out with mandates for, for um, COVID. And so as a result of their mandates, I ended up getting fired from my teaching job, not because I wasn't a good teacher, because my ratings were always very high as a teacher uh, from my students, not the faculty or like from my boss, because they don't do that. The students rate you. And, um, so very quickly within, I'd say three and a half months of being fired, I uh, sold my house, moved about 300 kilometers away from where my house was. And I got a call two days after the freedom convoy arrived in Ottawa. And within, I'd say three hours of that phone call, I was in Ottawa in the middle of the Arc hotel with all the truckers and helping them what I thought build a sustainment plan to help them stay there for long, a longer period of time. But as I was there longer and longer, cause I'd only planned on staying there for about five days and my role just started to, or continue to evolve. So week after week, it seemed like I was involved in different aspects of the convoy. And, uh, as a, you know, I was there for 22 days out of the 24 and, um, you know, I, it got to the point when I, when I arrived, everything was, was okay, but we needed to create a sustainment plan that transitioned away from me doing that over to then negotiating with the city and the police and trying to get the ball rolling, trying to get some sort of engagement from the federal government, which we never did, um, until a year later at the public order emergency commission, when, you know, we were, listening to the cabinet ministers, uh, give testimony about how great they are. So, yeah. so that's my journey in a nutshell. And I was at the public order emergency commission the entire time, the seven weeks, uh, I testified at that and, um, that wasn't the result we were hoping for, but recently, you know, two weeks ago, we got the, uh, judge, um, Mosley ruling that said that, yeah, you really screwed up here, Justin. Uh, and now it's recorded in a court of law and it's now precedent setting. So right. things are, things are looking up. Yes. Yeah. Um, so it seems appropriate that the first airing of this interview will be on the anniversary of the implementation <laughs> of the emergencies act. And that to start with the good news that it was found to be illegal. illegal. So yes, congratulations. Yes. Thank you. It's, it's, it's a long time coming. Uh, you know, it's the first time we've seen a major breakthrough in the court system, which 
I say that because of all of the massive colossal failures of the judiciary to protect the public in the last four years, this is the first major case where, you know, the citizens of Canada got a victory. Yeah. Um, and we can talk about that after if you want to, but it's, it's really this particular decision two weeks ago is incredibly monumental to protecting the rights and freedoms of Canadians, which is what the court was supposed to have been doing four years ago, but didn't. So it's a big deal. So, no, you're talking about it now. I want to give you the opportunity to say whatever you want to say about that. Yeah, because we had the commission a year ago, uh, Rouleau, who is, you know, a liberal member, um, deep roots in the Liberal Party, you know, f very familiar with uh, the Trudeau family, was selected to be the um, the commissioner in the Public Order Emergency Commission last year, which was, you know, seven weeks, as I said, and almost $20 million to put on that fiasco. And that is part of what we saw last year. That was part of the legislation. So if you invoke the Emergencies Act, you have 360 days, not 365, 360 days to convene a commission and table your report to all the, the parties, um, both the Senate and, and uh, the House of Commons, you have to give your report. And, you know, what is your findings? What is your recommendations? So although the court, or sorry, the commission itself had sort of the same powers as a courtroom, it was not a court. It was a commission run by a judge. And, you know, we were subpoenaed. I was subpoenaed to testify. Uh, many of the other witnesses were as well. Doug Ford was subpoenaed, but he fought it and he successfully got out of it because he's a coward. And at the end of the day, Rouleau ruled in favor of the government. Okay. But it doesn't matter. It's, it's toothless, really. It, it's completely meaningless that we went through that entire exercise. What matters is that we got in an actual court of law that an actual judge looked at evidence, made a ruling and determined, yes, you violated Canadian's Charter of Rights and you did not have the grounds to invoke the Emergencies Act. So that case from two weeks ago, that was uh, part of it's Section 62 of the Emergencies Act, which outlines the terms of when you can do a judicial review. So what this this thing was in court, and I'm not a lawyer, but I lived with lawyers quite extensively over the last two years. So I, I learned a lot through osmosis and I was an extra on suits once. So right there. I'm, uh, well, I, I got to tell you, full <laughs> disclosure, I played a yeah. judge on suits. <laughs> That's awesome. So, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, we're in the alumni now. Yeah. But the, um, the real, like the issue is that under that section, Two, which is what three of the three people sued the government within, I think, 60 days of the invoking invocation of the Emergencies Act. They it's like a lawsuit against the government. And because they invoked the Emergencies Act, they had a very short window of opportunity to launch this judicial review against the actions of the government. It's like suing the government, but it's not quite the exact same thing. But Section 63 of the Act outlines or specifies that you have to do a public order emergency commission. So the two things are linked. And what's interesting is the government was stonewalling the, the legal team on presenting the evidence or turning over evidence for the judicial review. 
They were stonewalling them. But the commission happened prior to. So because the commission happened, they couldn't hide the evidence that the legal team was looking for. So a lot of the evidence that was presented in the Public Order Emergency Commission was extracted from that for the legal team who filed the judicial review. So, you know, there is a lot of overlap to what is going on here. But the, the important takeaway is that the Public Order Emergency Commission is not legally binding. It's toothless. It's meaningless. Um, this court decision under the judicial review, that's what's really, really important. And that is legally binding and that is precedent setting. The government has indicated, yes, they're going to uh, appeal it. But that's not a legal reason for doing it. I think that's purely a political reason why they're appealing it. Mm -hmm. They think, they believe that the voters are stupid. And so by appealing it, it puts a question mark in the minds of the voters. Mm -hmm. Whereas mm -hmm. if they were to say, oh, you know what? Um, okay, we're just going to accept the terms or accept the ruling for, from Justice Mosley. Uh, we're guilty. We just accept that. We're going to move on. How are they going to go into an election admitting that they violated charter rights of the most peaceful protest in Canadian history? So, you know, I, this is a political maneuver. It's not about the law. Mm -hmm. I want to ask you, did you ever expect to be this much of an expert? <laughs> it's such a funny question, right? It's a, it's a great question because um, I would say four years ago, like the rest of Canada, I knew very, very little about the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I knew very little about the Constitution. I, I, I knew nothing about the law. And the last four years, and, and this, is, this is a really important thing because never before have Canadians been so engaged in the political process, the Charter of Rights, the Bill of Rights, and the Constitution, and, you know, People have woken up to the fact that as a, as a society, as a public, we have been completely negligent, asleep at the wheel, keeping an eye on politicians. Well, they've woke up a sleeping bear. And so now everybody is much more fully engaged in politics than they've ever been, I think, probably in the history of Canada. I think you're absolutely right. And I want to talk about, I want to get into... Um, because you're talking about why people are more engaged. And I want to talk mm -hmm. about why people aren't more engaged, you know, mm -hmm. because there are still, I would say, I don't know if it's the majority of people, but a large percentage of the population who thinks that it's people like you that are going to make the difference, right? You're the ones standing <laughs> up. And that's clearly not the case. Um, mm -hmm. Because it is obviously going to take every single person taking responsibility for their own uh, experience for our society. So I, I want to ask you, you know, I know you didn't step into, hi, I'm one of the faces of the Freedom Convoy. You didn't step into that. Mm -hmm. That activism is something that happens kind of one step at a time. And I want you to just talk about, again, briefly what happened at school, because I think that was the first step. Yeah, that was... Um that was a very interesting dynamic. And, you know, like I mentioned, I retired from the military in 2015. So I, I do collect a military pension. And when the mandates came out with my college, uh, it was, it was bizarre because, you know, I was a partial load instructor. So I was, I, the best way to put this is that I had part-time pay 
was full-time hours. Okay. <laughs> but I wasn't, I wasn't, you know, fully uh, a full-time faculty, um, making $40,000 a year for doing exactly the same job I'm doing now. Right. It's it, the college industry is very, very exploitive towards part-time teachers. And so in my particular case, because I was collecting the army pension, it was the only way that I could financially afford to mm. teach at the college because I wanted a full-time position, but my pension was subsidizing my teaching hobby that I was hoping to turn into a full-time uh, gig, right? Mm. But I had started to anticipate that something was coming in terms of a mandate because Western University did it shortly after Seneca did it, and I could see it coming before even they did it. So I was starting to bank every penny I could knowing that there's a high probability that I'm going to lose my teaching job. So when the school put out a, an email from the president saying, make no mistake, you don't get this thing. You don't have a job. So, which I took as a very, uh, offensive, uh, over threat. And so I push back. Sorry. I just want to stop you for a second, but yeah. just to underscore the times that we're living in, that we have to mm. talk about the thing. Yeah. The thing. Yeah, exactly. The <laughs> I thing. Just want yeah. To point that out. yeah. Anyway, you didn't yeah, take the so, thing. Yeah. So I, I didn't. Um, and it's because, you know, I, I didn't get fired for not taking it. I never got to that point. I got fired because I publicly, and I say publicly internal to the college and the faculty pushed back when I got that email and I said, I don't know how you think you're going to get around these 10 different areas of Canadian law, uh, to, to mandate that I undergo any form of medical intervention that I don't choose to get. And so as a result, you know, I got fired, but you know, I, there were, I was in a core group, a very small group of people and they were, we're all like-minded, but I took it upon myself to send the email in my name only because I knew of all the people in this very small group who were extremely concerned about this. I was the one who had a little bit of insulation between, you know, losing my mortgage uh, or losing my job and therefore losing my mortgage because I was getting the army pension and I had been banking some money. So I had some insulation between me and being homeless. So I thought, okay, I'm going to lead the way on this, but you guys are at some point are going to need to back me up. And they did, but not publicly. Right. Um, I was the one, it's like whack-a-mole. You stick your head out of the hole and you get a clean, taken clean off. Well, that was me. Um, but what it did is it sort of energized other people to start pushing back. Right. And something I, I, I know is that courage is very contagious. You've just got to be the first one to, to step out and, and do something. Sometimes though, when you see someone get their head taken clean off, <laughs> you know, for standing up for their own rights, a lot of people are like, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm that's, I'm just going to go along because I need my paycheck. You know, if you look at somebody like Kristen Nagel, mm -hmm. she was on the forefront of pushing back and she's paid the price for it. I want to ask you about that because mm -hmm. I agree with you that courage is conta contagious. Unfortunately, so is cowardice. Mm -hmm. I, how, how is it that you had the wherewithal? I don't even know if that's the right mm -hmm. word. The, 
the, well, the courage. How did you have the courage? How did that come about? How is it that you were the one who, who stepped up? And all you did, just so people understand, all you did was say, um, yeah, I, I don't think that mandating this is really legal. And people mm-hmm. just attacked you, your colleagues. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a surprise to me. And I and I remember the moment very vividly when I hit this the send button on that email. You know, I my body was full of adrenaline. I was worked up, but I had to do it. You know, there's there is a very, very big difference between moral courage and physical courage. And you know, when you're dealing with physical courage, like a, a fight or combat or, you know, life or death situation, that's physical courage. That's scary. But it doesn't mean that moral courage is any less scary when you're telling your truth to authority or to power. Um, you know, nobody wants to go into their boss's office and make an accusation to their employer, right? Like these things are, are very scary. Uh, you know, for example, going into a store where, without wearing a mask during... Uh, this this time period, you know, for me, it was always I had a lot of anxiety about it for probably the first one or two minutes inside a store without a mask. And then it just went away because nobody bothered to care. I had a few instances where people were interested in me all of a sudden, and I just acted like they didn't even exist. They were invisible and I couldn't hear them and walked away. Um, but for the most part, it 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 doesn't mean that it's not scary or full of anxiety. So how but do you, you have to do that? it? How do you do that? Um, you just have to push through the fear. I, I think you, you know, it's like I injured myself in the military parachuting. You know, I had a really terrible landing and was parachuting terrifying. Absolutely. It is. Is it part of the job? Is it necessary? Does it come sort of with the, the risks that you, you agreed to take when you joined the military? Yes. And you just have to push through the fear. And when you're, when you believe that morally you're on the right side, then in a sense, it's not a choice that you're making. It's a moral demand that must be met. And so regardless of your own personal discomfort, you still have to go forward and and do what needs to be done. And that's the position that the school put me in. They, They put me in a position where I had to now take action. And so the decision for me wasn't difficult to make. It was just more difficult to execute once I made the decision. And yes, it's, it's scary. It, it wasn't easy to do, but it was the right thing to do. And therefore I had to do it. I, I, I completely get that. Why do you think that so many people who know that something is wrong do not act, do not speak out or, or, okay, so let's say they're scared. That's kind of the obvious answer. Mm-hmm. Right? But why, what is it that prevents them from stepping over that fear? I think a large part is personal confidence. Um, A lot of people, you know, I remember a Seinfeld joke and I don't know if it's entirely true or not, but it's probably true. You know, uh, he did this skit where he said that, um, you know, you go to a funeral and people have to give a a eulogy 
And they say that one of the scariest things that people could do is public speaking. You know, and you're he compared it to a funeral. It's like more people would rather be in the box than up at the podium, right? Yeah. <laughs> so I think people don't want to draw attention to themselves that is negative. You know, you can't walk into a room and be the only dissenting voice and feel confident and comfortable. Not everybody is going to be somebody like Chris Guy. Okay. Yeah. You know, in, in he's on the far end of, of the, the spectrum when you're talking about boldness. Mm-hmm. You know, people will be more passive. They just, they, they want to get the result that they want, but they don't want to go through hell to get it. And so I think that people are much more willing to comply because of personal confidence. They don't believe that they have the strength to get through what needs to be done. So they'll just go along. And I, it breaks my heart when I hear people often say, well, I took the, you know, the intervention, the, uh, the medical experiment because I wanted to travel. And I'm like, oh my God, like you're, you're reaching for an excuse. Um, you're, you're looking to justify the fact that you were just too afraid to stand up for yourself, you know, and, and that's really what that boils down to because the charter of rights, section six, mobility rights guarantees your right to travel. It was even considered a pandemic was considered when they drafted the charter of rights and freedoms. And they said, even that, even a pandemic is not justification to prevent Canadians from being able to travel to and from Canada or in between cities and in between provinces. And yet, you know, we had New Brunswick and Quebec violating Canadian charter rights all day long when they wouldn't let people cross into uh, different provinces. Look at PEI uh, was another example. You know, that was a direct violation. But, but the other part I want to say is you don't have the confidence. The reason you don't have the confidence is because you don't know the law. You don't know what your rights are. So you can't defend yourself in a debate. You're going to be scared. You're going to confront a business owner or a police officer, and you're not going to have the personal knowledge it takes to defend yourself while your body is telling you to run. So there's a couple reasons why it's both physiological, it's both confidence, but it's also because you're not armed with the proper amount of information. So, I want to talk about, because I think if people, I think if we really got what's available on the other side Mm -hmm. of stepping over that, that more people would step out and speak their mind, you know, speak, be true to themselves, be true to their values, their principles, their morals. What has been the greatest benefit the greatest gifts because i know you've had a lot of struggles with this but what have been the greatest gifts in stepping over those fears oh i can tell you it's not economic <laughs> i can tell you that <laughs> That's um, too, but yeah. yeah yeah um you know my freedom habit doesn't pay money um you know the greatest gifts i think is has not been fully realized yet. I think we are going to still in the future benefit from what this whole experience truly is. And and I think this, this benefit is the experience has been very difficult for many, um, especially when you're talking about mental health and suicide, the loss of families, injuries, all of that stuff has been 
horrendous for Canadians and, and for, I think, the public around the world. But I think when we come out fully on the other side of this and we start to look at what were the circumstances that got us to that point and let's rebuild it. We, we really do need a fundamental rebuilding of the way um, we're letting governments interfere in our lives. And so I think we're not to the point where we've had the greatest benefit. And, you know, we could call this the great awakening because I do think it's the great awakening. I certainly believe that. But it's the great awakening. And then after that, it's now what do we do with that awakening? So I think we just haven't realized it yet, but we will get to that point. Do you on a personal? Uh, yeah. Go ahead. No, no, no. You go well, ahead. Well, on on a personal level, I mean, I have met some incredible patriotic Canadians, you know, and I I've often said that it it it's shocks the consciousness when you think about the fact that the amount of power that the anchorman had over individual family members against family members. And I'm talking the anchor man was somehow able to hypnotize parents from disown, disowning their own children, children disowning their parents, siblings, cousins, best friends of decades. You know, we all, somebody was disowning somebody during that time because of the anchor man had that much power and control over the psyche of family, you know, in they so easily broke the bonds that took decades and decades to build. I mean, I look at it and I think if, if your job as a parent was to protect your parent and to pass on your morals, ethics, and values to your own children and to raise good human beings, how is it that those children that you raised with your moral ethics and values was completely convinced of the opposite by some stranger on the television? who that stranger doesn't have a clue who you are, by the way. You know, th this, is, this is the amazement part to me, is how easily our society, our bonds, our institutions were completely unraveled within days. You know, you, you thought that France crumbled to the Germans in World War II. It's nothing compared to what the rest of the society did in the time of COVID. I want to talk about, you said that uh, it certainly hasn't been financially rewarding. Because <laughs> this was yeah. the conversation we had at that event. Yeah. It piqued yeah. my interest because you mm -hmm. were very forthcoming about your financial situation and and yeah. that, you know, you've, well, I'll let you tell the story because you, you were talking about the situation you're in with your girlfriend. Yeah. So I... Um... You know, quickly after losing my job, I start chewing through all of my, my savings. Um, in that follow the, the same January of the convoy, I had to cash in one of my RSPs, right? I cashed in and I had that RSP for years, but of course the government holds back 30%. Um, but that money was supposed to be to get me through the year. And then hopefully I was going to try to build a house because we, me and my ex- uh, had purchased land. We were going to build a house on the land uh, from the proceeds of, of the old house that we had to sell. And, you know, we were working towards getting financially independent, getting off the grid, you know, because at that time we didn't know how this was going to continue to go. And so we thought it's not about do not comply right now. It's do not rely. 
And so that was the goal we were working towards. So then I go to the convoy um, and then, you know, my life changes drastically. A few months later after the convoy, I ran with the Ontario party under the leadership of Derek Sloan in the, in the provincial election, unsuccessful. Um, and then James Top was traveling across the country. So I lent a hand to support James. So, you know, there's this constant pressure to keep up the, pre- like keep up the, the pushback against the government. You've got to stay in the fight because the work wasn't done yet. And so you're getting supported. The public wants you to do this. And like you said earlier, like there's a whole bunch of people wanting you to go forward and do the fighting for them. Right. So you feel this sort of sense of uh, duty, not only to my family, but to my country that I need to, the fight's not over. There's more work to do. So you, you, you do this, you, you get involved in, in you, support causes you know a friend of mine drew mcgilvery is the president of veterans for freedom uh he brought me in as one of the five original founders of veterans for freedom since then i've stepped back and i've handed over my role to somebody else but there's always work to do this wasn't how i saw my life going uh at all but then i got this idea that i should write the book Uh, i want to write the story because i feel that this the story is every bit as much Canadian story as it is mine. And we and are going to talk wanted... about your book. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I wrote the book, you know, we published the book in September and, you know, after James top, I want to say that a few months later, now I'm in Ottawa for seven weeks at the public order emergency commission. Right. So that's, that's all time that I'm putting to towards fighting back against the government so as of last, let's say April, uh, I turned 50 last April and, um, I thought, okay, I, I, I need to, I like, I'm running out of money and, and I'm, it's not, it's not sustainable to keep doing what I've been doing. And I think, you know, time to step aside, let more people come forward, you know, fill that void and maybe some better people, smarter ideas more energy that they can put into this. They can, they can take the fight forward. I need, I now need to start supporting myself because financially I can't. And you know, that, that time just before the commission last year, I was living on my land in a geodome, um, with no utilities, no water, like no, I had a backup solar powered Jackery thousand watt generator, little coffee maker. And you know, it's, it's not an easy way to live for an army guy. It wasn't too, too bad. Um, uh, but I'd hate to see how other people without that experience are living. So I, I spent about three months living on my land in a big giant geodome, uh, freezing at night, sweating during the day. Um, you know, no running water. I it was using what I could basically go to the store and buy in big giant jugs and stuff like that. Or if I went to a friend's, I'd fill up my water. So, you know, it was, it was, it's difficult, but last year in April, I started looking for work and, um, Catherine Christensen with Valor Law. She, she does give me some part-time work as a, I don't want to say paralegal, but more as a consultant on military files and, uh, which is great. And I love Catherine and she's so great to work for. Um, but I started also looking for a software job and I apply for software jobs all the time. Uh, I applied for three on Friday. Since April, I haven't had a single phone call, not one. 
not one interview, not one response, not even a, like a, a pre-screening interview on the phone, like nothing. Now it could be the fact that I'm 50 and nobody wants to give a software job to a guy who just graduated in 2019, or it could be, we know who you are mm-hmm. and we don't want you in our country, our company company because you don't follow rules. Um, I don't know what the, the, I mean, I've got a master's degree in business. You know, mm-hmm. I got 25 years in the army. I was an engineer in the army. I had, you know, my last job, a $50 million budget with 300 staff. You know, I've got leadership skills. I've got leadership experience. I've got a business background. I've got a software degree. And yet, well, it's just sound like a real underachiever, Tom. I think that's, I know, I know it's terrible, isn't it? Um, (laughs) so it's, it's, you know, it's not poor me. I'm not saying poor me. I'm just saying that, you know, I, I talked to Chris Barber. He was here not long ago and, um, he's concerned too, because, you know, he's under the JCCF, but JCCF is helping a lot of people. And so there is a bit of a cap on the amount of money that Chris Barber can, can expect the help from the JCCF, but it's going to cost him thousands of dollars out of his own pocket. Mm. You know, Tamara Leach. Yeah. Yeah. We are all trying to do our part for, for Canada, but we are all, we all need to support ourselves. And I'm, I'm in a situation where I, if it wasn't for my girlfriend, um, I would not be able to support myself. Like I just would not in my, my army pension, unfortunately, because now I'm no longer with uh, my spouse, uh, you know, that comes with, you know, support payments and stuff like that. So I'm not, um, you know, the the army pension just doesn't cut it. It's not nearly enough on, on what I need to survive. I mean, I turned in my car. Um, I've cut down all my bills as much as humanly possible. Um and I know we're going to talk about the book, but in all fairness to Canadians, um, Canadians are strapped and they're not buying books. I'm, I'm very appreciative to everybody who did purchase my book. I'm very, very grateful for that. But, you know, it's not a, it's not a Jordan Peterson book where he sold 5 million copies. Uh, last time I checked, I sold um, just under 1,300 copies and it's been on the market now for five months. So, I want- you know, you're pointing to something I think is a roadblock for a lot of people, you know, given the financial constraints mm-hmm. you're under. And as you said, Chris Barber and, and Tamara Leach, mm-hmm. and, and quite frankly, me and many people that I know who have mm-hmm. also, you know, been trying to get the truth out, um, yeah. have put themselves in a precarious financial position. So how do we encourage people to step mm-hmm. up when the result appears to be this. Do you see any solution to that? Oh, that's such a really good question. Um, In my own particular case, my plan going forward is um, to get off grid, to get back to the land, build some sort of structure that I can live out of or that we can live out of. Um, and reduce all of our reliance on the system as much as we possibly can. And just maybe, maybe the army pension will be something that sustains me. Um, but in this particular moment, um, I take whatever odd job I can. We joked about being on suits. I do work sometimes as a, um, as an extra on TV shows in the background, 
But, you know, the, I didn't do it for the longest time. I only recently started doing that just before Christmas because the entire movie industry uh, was completely caught up in, in the masking and the mandate nonsense. Um, they took it to a whole new level. So I said, I'm not playing that game. Uh, yeah, it so ended, I've done a little bit of, yeah. as an actor. Yeah. 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 And so I, uh, just before this interview, I got contacted for maybe a job in April um, to, to do. And I mean, it's, it's fun. I meet some really interesting people. Uh, me, I work with a group of, uh, either former military or police. Uh, if it involves guns on a TV show, then I usually get the call. I, I never have to, I, you know, I twice I've been on a show and I got to shoot the gun. Usually I just carry it around and I get paid really good money for that because I know how to carry it. And that's what the movie people are interested in. Does you right. make it look good? <laughs> you don't yeah. have to use it. Just make it look real. Right. So, I, yeah. You know, I think you, you were saying earlier about we need a complete restructuring, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's what's needed. There, there's, I think we're still in maybe too much of a scarcity mode where everybody's like so scared mm -hmm. financially. And, and yet if we all banded together, you know, and started coming up with creative ideas, I mean, you come up with some personal creative ideas, right? Mm -hmm. But maybe what we need is a, a, a national conversation, creative ideas of mm -hmm. how we build this, you know. Okay. Yeah. And there's, there's a lot of groups out there now, um, you know, this is one of the benefits I think of, of this experience in the last four years is that a lot of people are turning towards homesteading. You know, yes. this is, this is where, you know, the mix of modern technology, we don't have to go back to, you know, a uh, little house on the prairie days, you know, we don't have to go back to that, but there is an appeal to going back to that way of living to, to get more in touch with family more in touch with the environment that is, is fulfilling. I mean, I, my land, uh, that I purchased is, is rather large. It's over a hundred acres. And, um, my, my mental health is strongest. It is, it is the very best when I'm on the land and I'm walking around. And so, you know, when you get in touch with that part of what it means to be somebody who can provide for yourself, um, mentally, I think it's a lot more freeing. And I'm happy to hear that even a lot of people in the city are thinking in these terms, but they're saying, okay, I'm going to keep my house in the city, but I'm going to start getting involved in other groups that are doing community farming, um, that kind of stuff. Or maybe I want to farm at my own house, not farm, sorry, do a, a garden or people are getting into microgreen businesses or just using it personally at home. Like there are things that you can do to try to reduce your reliance on the system. And even if the world just went back to the status quo of what it used to be before, if you're a homesteader, I, I think it, it, you're, you're very well insulated against a catastrophe, but at the same time, even if the catastrophe never comes, it's a better way to live your life. You well, know, I, I love what you're saying about, you know, you're really touching on personal responsibility, right? Yes. Which goes back to where we started with getting involved with all of this, right? The sense, I, I think there's so much that's intangible about being responsible for your own life, about stepping up and speaking out, that there is a sense, like you, you talk about a sense of, I, I don't know, what I hear is strength 
of of mm-hmm. um, confidence. You know that when you're out on the land, you you have a different relationship with the land. And I think that we are so become overprotected from that direct relationship with nature and with the land. Yeah, and I think that that's uh, that's very fair. I feel. Um very different mentally when I step inside a large greenhouse. You know, Mm -hmm. you go to one of these big uh, commercial greenhouses and you step inside that environment. And I, as soon as I I walk into that, I cross that threshold of the door, I feel mentally different. There's something Mm -hmm. about that space. I don't know if it's, you know, a feng shui thing or not. I, I, I don't know, but I know mentally, I just feel different. I feel like that's where I'm more meant to be than in the concrete jungle. And so I, I do have plans on my land to have a large greenhouse, but I'm going to build a greenhouse myself. Um, there's a great guy in the UK. He's got a YouTube channel called, um, his name is Paul Robinson and he makes geodesic domes out of wood. And it's the best way to do it that I've seen on the internet. Many other ones leak, but he found a way to prevent it from leaking. Like I took a, uh, Two years ago, I got certified as an aquaponics system designer. So that's growing food through fish manure. And, you know, I did that certification. Then I signed up. I have a timber framing uh, online course that I've, I'm, I took. And I've been in contact with them recently too. Because on my land, I plan, I purchased a mill two years ago. And I plan to harvest some wood out from my land and build a big giant barn on my land. So these are all skills. Like I'm investing in skills um, because I think that this is what's going to be more valuable to me going into the future. Now, I know a lot of people say buy gold, buy metals, and I agree with that. Buy it if that's the disposable income that you have later. But right now, you should be investing in some skills. And before you're buying gold, I would suggest you buy seeds Um, because seeds you can trade, seeds you can grow and, you know, live off of the, the product of those seeds. Whereas you could show up to my land with a donkey cart full of gold. And if I've got seeds, you're not getting my seeds. I don't want your gold. I can't eat that. I can't do anything for that, but I can, I can feed myself and and other people. So I think skills and certain commodities are, are really important to have. And I know there's a lot of people in the urban, urban, uh, setting that are filling up their cold storage rooms right now with, with years worth of, um, food and supplies and stuff. I think that's a good plan. It's insurance. It's just insurance. You know, we, we pay for insurance or we could pay to put some food in our cold cellars. Well, that would be, um, uh, some positive behavior to emulate because you're talking about, so I <laughs> yeah. want to get, I want to talk about your book. Mm-hmm. Um, because as you were talking about this, I'm thinking, yeah, that's really great. Cause the more people do that, the more other people will get the idea and start start to follow suit. Yes. The other side of it is, um, I want to talk about, again, because I'm really interested in this conversation about why some people stand up, why some people mm-hmm. are not drawn into a mob mentality, right? So that would be the negative side yeah. of what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and in your book, and I'm just going to hold it up. Um, sure. I know that if I got it right, hold on. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I really encourage people to read the book because you give a really precise account. And for me, I think the interesting thing was, now I was there, 
But I think most people don't understand how much went into organizing something this big that stayed peaceful on the side of the protesters, right? And, and it's really quite fascinating to listen to that. But back to my point about the question. Um, and I just want to find my reference. So you talked about um, mob mentality and that um, everybody is susceptible to mob mentality. You talked about, obviously, we know about crowds, we know, but also the police. But you also talked about your own experience with it. And I just want to find this. Give me a second here. You said so you were up against uh, a number of people and you said, I could feel my aggression start to push the adrenaline around my body. And remember looking at this person and asking him if he would be willing to go in and start fighting. Thankfully, he immediately declined. In that moment, I realized I was starting to succumb to a form of mob mentality and it scared the hell out of me. I knew it was happening while simultaneously knowing it was wrong. Yeah. How you had the facility, the presence of mind to observe yourself mm. about to go down that route. Yeah. How, what did you do? What is it that had you have that presence of mind? How do we, how do other people, to that yeah and, and you know the first time i ever heard of mob mentality i was a young soldier and we were doing training for you know riot control um and, and back in those days in the early 90s it was called aid to civil power uh, now we call it something more friendly which is alia assistance to law enforcement agencies and so you know the fundamental principles are the same but i remember in that training talking about mob mentality and you know over the years i've done more training i've done more uh, reading about it in understanding that you know I, I great example was uh about 10 years ago uh london ontario fanshawe college there was a big frosh week big party whatever it was and you know the 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 party got out of control the police showed up next thing you know a police car was set on fire and there was a kid on top, you know, jump there, I think rolling over, flipping over another cop car, doing all this damage. The kid was identified and turns out he was there uh, in that city as a hockey player. He was an NHL hopeful. Well, as a result, he got charged and he also got kicked off the team, hmm. right? And, and it ruined his life, but it was a, a case he was saying, like, I was drunk and I got swept up in the 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 energy the euphoria of of the crowd and so in in my particular case you know when i was young i lived in i grew up in niagara falls ontario and it's a rough town and um yes it's a tourist town but the places i lived it's a rough town and you know there wasn't you know a month that went by that i didn't have to get into a fight with some kid or or another and sometimes more than one so when you're, you're kind of accustomed, and I, I was in martial arts at a very young age. I think I started judo at seven and I've done many, many different things. So when you're accustomed to not letting somebody violate your personal space without consequence, you know, it's very hard. And I mean, you, you kind of get this mentality of that you're going to stick up for the weaker person. So there's a little bit of like, I need to protect people. 
I need to get in there and, and do this. And that, as a soldier, that's really your job is to, to be somebody who protects other people. And so you kind of put that all into a very intense situation, like what we faced. Um, cause I was there when, when Candace and the other man were run over by the horse, I was only about 15 feet away from that. And so that situation was pretty intense, uh, before and after, I would say much more intense after the fact, cause that's kind of when I started to recognize, you know, after the, the, the two people were run over by the horse that I was starting to get worked up. I wanted to get in there and push back and say, you know, no, you're not going to do that to us. You know, we're, we're going to stop you. And I looked at this guy, he's a veteran. Uh, he was a Van Du, um, uh, French, um, Afghanistan veteran. He had his medals on, he had his beret on. So I knew the unit that he was from and I saw his special forces tab, you know, he's a very, very fit individual. And he's the one who said, no, we're not doing that. And I'm like, what am I thinking? What am I doing? He's right. I'm what wrong. Is, what is the mechanism? The in the, what is the mechanism that had you stop and do that? Because most people, once they're caught up in that mentality, mm -hmm. they don't stop. In in my case, what really snapped me out of it was that I knew that within that crowd, people would have followed me. And I think it was that sense of responsibility that woke me up from, from what was happening because I knew that I could have been, you know, the match that lit the powder kick by doing that. So when I, when he said no, and then I, and I was like, okay, that's a, he's right. And if I go in there, people are going to get hurt because people will follow that lead. And I, so, I just, yeah, I just want to say that is true leadership is recognizing your own responsibility mm -hmm. in what could happen with other people. And I see yeah. that sorely missing. And I, I'm sorry, I didn't, don't want to cut you off. I just want to really underscore that. Yeah, um, so no, it, 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 it was hard. I mean, it's hard. It, it's like the equivalent of you're walking down the street. You're, you know, you're trained to handle yourself physically. You've been training your whole life for things like that and watching, walking by and watching somebody get beat up and doing nothing. You know, that's, that's kind of how it made me feel like I wasn't defending the people that needed to be defended. But I think in that particular case, it was, it was different in that the ultimate victory, which is strange to say the ultimate victory was to take the beating and to not retaliate because in that case, you want a tyrant to expose themselves for the tyrant that they actually are. And so, you know, if you want to take it to a, a, a religious um, example, you know, you look at the, the example of Jesus carrying a cross. There's no retaliation. You know, being the sacrifice, being the martyr is the victory in this particular case. And, and while I don't condone the violence that did happen to the people. It was, it was a big mistake on the part of the government to go and harm Canadian citizens the way that they did. I think, you know, Drew, Drew had said this to a room full of people. I wasn't there, but we've talked about it many times. He said, you know, you, you're probably going to get beaten up. You might even get a few broken bones. They're not going to kill you, but you're going to, 
you're going to force them to show the world how far they're willing to go. Well, and they look, did. Yeah, look at the the resistance, the um, civil rights movement in the U.S., where mm-hmm. you know African Americans trained themselves to be beaten up and not retaliate, to expose yes. that, to also to focus on the power of love, right? Mm-hmm. And I, I'm a big fan of Martin Luther King when when he talks about love, not as some soft, squishy thing, but as a, uh, the most robust, strongest energy that we have. I, mm-hmm. I'm curious, you know, given that what I hear also in what you're saying is that you were really thinking of the big picture, right? So yes. in this moment, I personally want to retaliate because this is wrong. Mm-hmm. But you're thinking from a, a much higher view. Mm-hmm. We see within the you know, the freedom movement, you know, the truth movement, we see that there's, there are people who are passionately fighting for what they believe, but sometimes clashing internally and not stepping back and looking at that big picture. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that? I've got many thoughts on that. (laughs) Um, I'm, I'm frustrated by that in the sense that you know, that shows just a, a lack of patience. It's not a lack of commitment or a, a lack of patriotism. Um, it is just a lack of patience. We have to remember that what happened with this the last four years was something that's been planned for decades. This isn't, you know, a good idea fairy that just popped up one day. Next thing you know, our society crumbles. These pieces were put into place for decades and decades. And we can't, we can't do things where we expect a big, big move to all of a sudden have our lives return back to normal. They, in order to win this, we have to have a bunch of small victories, small successive things. And sometimes those things are very passive. You know, we didn't notice the fact that for, for decades, the public was being put into check. We didn't notice this. And so now we're not going to be able to go back to what we had or maintain a new way of, of living because we do a bunch of big moves. Yes, the convoy was a big move, but the convoy was was more like a pressure cooker. That's There was all these things the, that the government had done to us. And the, the convoy was a manifestation of all those small actions put together. It was a pressure cooker and that's what happened. But now that the convoy's out and now that the government has backed off on a lot of things, there's no mandates, there's no um, masking required. You know, a lot of the things that they were doing to us are now gone. So what is the big move that you're trying to make? What is it that you're trying to achieve? What is the justification for a big move right now where the general public is going to get behind you? And I can honestly say there isn't one. There's nothing. You've, we were put into this pressure cooker situation. So the Canadian public responded. What's, what's the pressure being built against the the public right now? There isn't one, you know, the, um, the only thing that I can think of right now where the public might be incensed enough to protest across the country is if Justin Trudeau doesn't either call an election or step down or break the alliance with the NDP. Um, this is the kind of stuff. If they continue to keep this alliance and 
passed through legislation that is ridiculous for Canadians, maybe they're going to put the public into a pressure situation again. But I think that's not going to happen until the next election. I think they're going to play it smart. So, you know, it was always about, it was always about the pressure. It was always about the pressure that we were under and we responded to that pressure. Well, given that, I I agree with you. You're right. There is no pressure cooker. Mm -hmm. People think, oh, well, that's over, you know, (laughs) that's that's passed. And yet we are still using that medical experiment and Mm -hmm. people are dying and being injured and yes. we know it's poison and all of this evidence has come out, including mm-hmm. the commissioner's report from the National Citizens Inquiry, um, yep. including evidence all over the place, um, New yeah. Zealand, the US, the UK. I mean, there's uh, Japan. I mean, there's evidence. Mm-hmm. We're up to our eyeballs in evidence and yet nothing's happening. Why is that not creating a pressure cooker? Because you're not. One thing that we know is uh, I'm not a big believer in human nature as much as I am in human behavior. Um, But in my experience, especially what I've learned over the, the, the last four years, if people don't have a direct skin in the game where it interferes with their life, they are not going to feel any sense of, of duty or a call to action. If it doesn't affect them, they're not going to be interested. They just want to get past this and go back to their old, comfortable, cushy lives. And that's the reality. If somebody were to suddenly say, you can't get back on a plane again, or you got to wear a mask, or you've got to, to keep your job, you got to take this, uh, this jab that's directly affecting me. All right. Now I'm going to look for other people because now I know they're out there. There was a whole convoy of them. So until the direct pressure, as long as it happens to somebody else, I'm, you know, that's the philosophy of people. I don't have to be interested, but if it affects me, fine, then I'll suit up. The, the challenge is how do you convince people that don't see the connection to what is happening over there on the left to you in your living room right now? If you don't make that connection for people, they won't make it for themselves. They won't feel the call of action. And they're not going to do anything. In fact, I would argue that they'll probably be an obstacle for those who want to take steps to stop that, despite the good that it'll do for everybody across Canada. Um, yeah, that's really what I think it comes down to is, you know, what's in it for me? That's what people say. What's in it for me? I, it's very myopic. Yeah, unfortunately, I think you're right. I think that we have also been trained to think that way, you know, and certainly, you know, in the urban jungle where everybody's in their little compartment, you know, there's no requirement of even, there's no requirement of knowing and helping each other. That was, this is such a stark contrast, you know, maybe what you're talking about, about homesteading and learning those skills, those kinds of things require a relationship with the people around you, you know, um, with community. How do you see that we get people to have skin in the game? Do you think that there's a, a way or multiple ways other than, you know, catastrophe? Well, you know, what's interesting is I, I do once in a while get invited to speak at, 
various different uh, places. And what's very interesting to me is that they're always in different cities. And what it finally dawned on me one day is that, you know, it's not just this meeting that's happening today. This meeting is happening here right now and I'm attendance, but I know there's other meetings happening right there in that moment that are talking about the same exact issues. So these, let's say groups are all across Canada because I've gone from, you know, Ontario out to Alberta three times last year. And I've spoken at different uh, events, even as far as Lethbridge, Alberta, Alberta last year and a bunch in Ontario. And I know that there are active groups out there in all communities all across this country, more rural, yes, but even some in the cities. And those conversations are still happening. Those groups are talking about not relying on the system. They're hedging their bets that if this crap comes back again, we're going to be prepared. We're not going to be left blindsided like that. And they're also involving their children in this. Okay, so this is a multi-generational lesson that we're all learning together. You know, when I was campaigning with the Ontario Party, I did a small little breakfast at a restaurant. um, And a family pulled their children out of school to come to this thing and to me and we talked and they they shared with me you know how they were feeling during uh before the convoy and after the convoy and how they were still feeling and they're they're telling me why they were supporting me to be become an mpp and there is a desire out there and what's really really upsetting frustrating is the number of of victims that are now starting to succumb to the experimental injection that they took, but they will not acknowledge it still. You know, I, I just before we, you and I started this this morning, I had a conversation with my girlfriend about a family member um, who had the most bizarre medical issue just happened to her. You know, my girlfriend's a dentist. Uh, unfortunately, she can't get licensed in Canada because her license is good in the European Union, but somehow teeth in Europe are different than they are in Canada, I guess. Right. But I said, I said, that doesn't sound to me like any medical thing I've ever heard of. She said, she's, it's not. I said, is this person vaccinated? She said, oh yeah. Right. They're still not making the connection and they don't want to hear the connection. They don't want to admit that maybe they were wrong. Right. This is something that's never happened to, to, her before obviously she had no history she's a senior and this is happening all over the world right now and people refuse they refuse to acknowledge the connection and i go crazy when i hear that stupid saying from statistics of correlation versus causation i hate that saying i think it should be thrown in the garbage you know i i i share your frustration I, I don't I don't know what the solution is. It's one of the reasons I started this podcast to have conversations about how we speak to people who don't yet see what's happening. Mm-hmm. So I think a good place to start is to arm yourself with not left we uh, left leaning right leaning sort of mentality. Be very moderate in your approach. And when you are talking to people, 
if you're better educated on what actually even happened at the convoy, because I, you know, I recently was on a trip and I met somebody from Canada and she was talking about all sorts of things. It came out that I was at the convoy and wow, the whole tone of the thing changed completely because she had a friend who's from Ottawa and she was getting information from the friend living in Ottawa, what it was like, you know, unfortunately she spoke to a person that really didn't care for the convoy. It would have been great had she spoke to somebody who lived in the downtown core, who was very supportive. You know, one of these families that took in truckers to give them food and showers and a bed to sleep in, but she didn't talk to one of those people, but she wasn't very open to talk about my experience, even though I was the one who was there as well. So it's, it's tough, but if you're armed with facts, so for example, why would I, what am I talking about? We know from the public order emergency commission that from the time the convoy arrived to the time the police attacked on the 18th of February in the entire city, there was five arrests for violent crime, five, five arrests for violent crime. Okay. A lot of Ottawa citizens said they never felt more safe to be in the city of Ottawa than when the convoy was there. Okay. That's something you never hear in the media. That's something that you never hear, but it is fact that was testified to. The evidence was shown up on, on the board that five arrests for violent crime happening from the time the convoy arrived to the time the police, uh, attacked the public. And as I understand it, that was a decrease in oh, crime. 90%. There was a 90% decrease in crime across the city. I will okay. tell you that my experience as a woman walking down the street in Ottawa during the convoy at midnight on a Saturday night, I have never felt safer. Yes. It was like being surrounded by my brothers and sisters. Yep. Absolutely. And yet these are the the facts. These are the statistics. These are the things that can help you in a conversation with talking about the convoy. And, you know, the biggest thing is I, I, for people that are against the convoy, I, I always say to them, okay, you know that the convoy twice raised $10 million. You know that people line the overpasses all across the country. Okay. People went to Ottawa to protest. 6 million Canadians are unvaccinated. What is it that those, the 15% of the population knows that you don't? Like, what is it? Why do all these people over here, why are they so upset? Do you think that one day they all just had woke up with some mass hysteria and said, I'm getting in my truck and driving to Ottawa? No, there was a a legitimate reason. They had justification. Do you know what their justification was? Do you know what they wanted? You know, and and when I hear the argument, oh, they were trying to violently overthrow the government. I said, do you, you, did you hear that there were bouncy castles there? Yeah. Did you hear that there was hot tubs? Yeah. Did you hear there was hockey games? Yeah. Did you hear there was children there? Yeah. Does that sound like a violent insurrection to you? Like put the logical pieces together. Like have, look at the facts. Don't just listen to what the anchor man told you and regurgitate that. You got to look at the facts and, and you just have to point out the facts to people. And they're like, yeah, that kind of doesn't make sense. Does it? Yeah, it doesn't. You know, the MOU, the MOU, I want to touch on the MOU because it's a famous thing that comes up all the time. Oh, you guys tried to overthrow the government with the MOU. Really? Read the MOU. You'll see there's no or else statement. There's no threat in the MOU. It's a request 
by the governor general to do this and to involve citizens in the process. The people who wrote it believed they were triggering an actual mechanism that was under the authority of the governor general of Canada to do this. They thought they were participating in legal mechanisms within our government. And by the way, is it violent to send a letter requesting the governor general dissolve your parliament or get the citizens involved? Is it violent to send that through registered mail? Does that sound like an act of violence that they were trying to overthrow the government of the elected, the elected government? Well, now we get two years later and we know that the government violated all of our rights. I want to know if these people are going to retract their beliefs and their statements about the convoy breaking the law. Well, we now know that the government broke the law and they did it in a pretty grotesque way. So are you going to come now and advocate for the citizens now that you know that in a court of law, a judge has said the government was wrong? Is anyone even going to read the decision? That's the other question. Well, it's unfortunately, it's kind of uh, who gets there first. Right? Yes, so, yes. You know, if yes. you start the narrative with, oh, this was violent and attempted insurrection, mm -hmm. That's kind yeah. of what people are left with, right? They've moved on. Yeah. And, um, and, and there, there's a lot of these little juicy examples in there too. You know, they stole, they stole food from the homeless. Really? <laughs> do you think, do you think that, you know, that many people showing up to the convoy wouldn't have shown up with food? <laughs> there like, was so much free food. I mean, yes. uh, it yes. was, you know, it was remarkable how much yeah. free food, free clothing, free hair care products, free yeah. sanitary products. I mean, everything, yeah. everything you could possibly need. It was there. It was all donated. I mean, I, when I went home, I cleaned out the Ark Hotel We had, at our conference room. I packed my vehicle right to the ceiling with everything that I could pack into it. And they were all donations. It was all donations. I'm not talking food. I'm talking coffee makers, whiteboards, uh, markers, um, you know, uh, toothpaste, deodorant, like everything that, that was donated by the public to the convoy, you know, on the convoy, we, we took truckloads of food to homeless shelters because we, we couldn't take it all anymore. And then sometimes we were saying, yeah, don't bring it here. Just take it to a homeless shelter. We can't take it. We have no room for it. We weren't set up with warehouses, you know, um, although Coventry was one, but then the police decided to raid Coventry and take food. So if anyone was stealing food from, from anybody, it was the police that went in on the 7th of February and stole it from Coventry, you know? I, I mean, it's, you know, I can see that, um, your passion <laughs> drives you, your sense of yeah. moral indignation mm -hmm. drives you. I want to read a final quote, um, mm -hmm from your book, um, maybe two short ones. Sure. The first one is, I believe Western civilization is in very deep trouble and quite possibly we're at the beginning of the end of life as we know it. Mm -hmm. I don't mean that on an apocalyptic level, but on a spiritual and moral level. Too much mm -hmm. has been exposed in terms of government corruption and incompetence to ever go back to the lives we once had. We cannot unring the bell. Mm-hmm. I wrote that. That sounds pretty good. It's not bad, huh? <laughs> That's why I got yeah. a little highlighter. <laughs> yeah. And then the, then you go on in the, the final pages to say, I can assure you that we're winning. 
No matter how it looks, we never had the option to lose. Our children are counting on us. Yeah. So given this massive shift in our society, how do you maintain that optimism? In the military, we refer to it as a no-fail option or a no-fail mission. What is what is the alternative? Like, what are the two choices that you have? You either have to succeed or you have to, in the military context, you're going to be killed or you're going to be wiped out. And your country is not going to be, you know, left able to defend itself. Those are the two extremes that you have. And I think that as time has gone on and you know, this great awakening, and I, and I strongly believe in the great awakening piece. I think that people finally realize that they've been asleep at the wheel and that they need to be more engaged in, in society and they need to be more active, especially on the political level. And so I think, you know, a good friend of mine, uh, one of the founders of V4F, I, I watched him speaking at a, at a presentation in Mississauga last year before the book came out. And he said, you know, why is everybody here fighting so hard to get back the life that they had before COVID? That society, that life is gone. You need to reevaluate what it is that you're now fighting for. Don't fight to go back to the old way because the old way got us into the, the situation we're in now. You've got to go forward with new ideas, new politics, new, a new outlook on, on what it is that you want for this country. And I, and I think at this point, what's, what's still difficult is what is the future vision for Canada? And I think that, you know, being a melting pot country or whatever term you want to call it, that's always been a sticky, difficult thing for Canada. What is the vision of Canada? What, who are we? What do we want to be right now? That's a question that's up in the air. And, and, and what, what is the Canadian identity? You know, ask a Canadian, oh, you know, uh, what are you? What's your, oh, I'm, I'm Irish. I'm, you know, I'm African. I'm this. Nobody ever just says, looks at you and go, what are you talking about? I'm Canadian. Nobody says that, right? What is the identity of Canada before COVID? That was a, that, this question mark. But now what's it going to be? How do we want to redefine what Canada is going forward? We're never going to really get there um, in, a, in a very coherent, you know, unified Canada-wide vision of what we are. But I think we can start to do stuff like that at a local level. And I think in it, what is family now? I mean, look at how badly family has been transformed into this gender ideology. Look at what Hollywood is doing to the psyches of men in their homes. You know, for 30 years, we've been told men are, you know, this this narrative of toxic masculinity uh, that look at a sitcom right now, all the men they're yeah, they're the star of the show, you know, King of Queens, everybody loves Raymond, but what is the message? The message is that the man in the house is a buffoon, but it's his wife that really runs the show. I didn't make that observation. Actually a, a, a married woman homeschooler made that observation and talked to me about that. You know, this is the signal that men are getting, through movies. I mean, James Bond, you know, the latest James Bond, I don't want to spoil it, but 007 was not a Caucasian man. He's a black woman. Okay. Like 
what is what is the message that we're getting at the the family unit level through the media through indoctrination happening in the schools and in government and in employment and all this you know the social equality and like we've transformed society in a way that society didn't drive you know and that's a big thing and i think society has to start driving the direction it wants to go now so i want to bring it back to the personal i want to because mm-hmm. that's where people have access i yes. think that um you know you personally have obviously changed and grown throughout mm-hmm. this process and i think that as well as looking for a vision of what canada is we can look at what is our vision for ourselves who are we going to be at the end of our journey in the face mm-hmm. of all of this so i want to ask you how have you changed and what would you tell the Tom Morazzo of four years ago hmm. that could have been? I, <laughs> oh, man, that's a juicy question because part of me would have said, don't answer that phone. <laughs> Do not answer that phone. Um, and the other part of me would have been, you should have been in Ottawa two days before waiting for the trucks to arrive. You should have been there greeting them. So I, I, I'm caught. I, I mean, this is a this is a really, really tough question um, because I have some days, I'm not going to lie, I have days where I wish I never heard of the convoy. And then I have other days where I think it, you know, other than the, you know, my two children, the most significant thing I'll ever do in my life was to be a part of that convoy in a small way. And so, you know, I'm caught between these two realities because there are days where I just want to shut down my social media go to my land, get back inside my dome, live off grid and, and, and hide and just go about my day and, and, you know, be with my land and the people that I love. And then there are other days where it's like, no, I'm running in the next election because I want accountability. So, you know, the, the, the short of the answer is I'm all over the place. I am all over the place. Do you not, though? Because, I, you know, I listen to you and I hear that you're quite hard on yourself about. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead. About maybe the mistake, the things you've done that you see as, as perhaps the best or the mistakes you've made. But I see somebody who has expanded his capacity to take responsibility for life, for to demonstrate to his children what it is to stand up and create the society that you want to live in. I mean, I see a man who is strong. Yeah, I, I definitely am highly motivated by the future of my children. I, that is a, this is a fundamental motivation for me. The irony is either one of my children are interested in anything that I'm participating in or, or didn't want to even hear about the convoy. You know, I didn't tell my son that I was at the convoy until I was already home. Uh, and my son was extremely upset that I was even there. Um, my daughter knew, you know, but my daughter at the time was six years old. So it, it has a different impact on her. She doesn't understand, you know, the global impact of this or even the national impact. But, you know, I read this book years ago. Um, he's a U.S. Navy SEAL, retired. Uh, it's called uh, Extreme Ownership. It's a guy named Jocko Willick. I read the book and I'm like, yeah, okay. 
Like for me, it wasn't this new revelation of this taking personal responsibility. Nobody's going to come to save you. You make decisions. You have to own the decisions, you know, right or wrong. You have to be responsible for your decisions. That's not being self uh, deprecating. That is being responsible. You know, what is it when we hear leaders go out there and take, I take full responsibility, but nothing happens. You take full responsibility because you know nothing's going to happen to you. So you just throw out the, the, the perception that you're actually being accountable when you're not. Because without accountability, without a consequence to your action, you can say you're taking responsibility all day long and it's meaningless. But there are those of us out there that say, right or wrong, I am going to put my name on this and I am going to accept at the very least, letting everyone know that I was responsible for what happened. And everybody else is going to come to me with what the accountability part of that equation is. You know, I can't take responsibility and then fire myself from something. Usually you screw up, you go to your boss, you say, I screw up. He goes, yeah, you did. You're fired. Right. But it, I've always been very, very willing to own up to the mistakes that I have made. And in the military, and this, a lot of this comes from the military, right? You, you are in charge. You are the leader. You don't get to pass the buck down to your subordinates. It was your plan. You had the legal and command authority to make a decision and to take action. And you either did or didn't do the right thing. The buck stops with you. And that's where you have to be the one to be held accountable for the things that you've done. Now, I've seen examples over the years where poor leaders have actually blamed their subordinates for the failure. And I've seen other poor leaders not take responsibility for it. And then I've seen other people sacrificed for what other people did that had nothing to do with them. So I've seen the whole thing. But for Tom Morazzo, I put my name on it no matter what the outcome, what the consequence is going to be, because that is me taking ownership no matter what happens. And I do, I purposely in the book wrote about the things that I, I saw as my mistakes, um, the things that I should have known better and didn't see or didn't recognize at the time. Now, I, I will say in my own defense, um, some of those things that I didn't recognize were not my job. They weren't things I was involved in. It wasn't my responsibility to deal with that particular issue. But where I want to say is my military training taught me that I actually should have been paying more attention to things that I missed. And I also put those failings in there as a lessons learned for anyone else in the future ever doing this kind of thing. So I want people, and I'm talking about the fact that we didn't do the document for freedom that Keith Wilson and and other people worked on. Keith drafted it. And it was the document we put out in the third week, which is something that we should have showed up in Ottawa with that in hand saying, this is in writing why we're here, what we're here for. And these are the things we want to see. And these are the timelines we want to see them in. This is what we should have shown up to Ottawa with on day one. So in the future, if somebody's planning something, I don't know, in Berlin or something like that, if you're a farmer, read the book and take the lesson, right? <laughs> you've got you've to give people, you know, a clear understanding of why it is that you're unhappy, why you're protesting. You know, a great example of that is the American Declaration of Independence. 
if you read that document, it actually lists all the grievances that the colonies felt prior to declaring, you know, what led up, what was the pressure they were under to lead them to declaring their independence from America or from, from, um, the King of England, you've got to give it in plain English and in writing or in French, but in writing and give that to the government, give that to the media and say, all your, all your questions will be answered there. So I wanted the book to show all the warts. I, I wanted all that stuff in there to show people, Hey, it's, we, maybe it looked good to you, but there was a lot of chaos in the background. I mean, we were trying to confine a tornado. Well, this was one of the things that impressed me was that you, you told it all. And I think this is really important. It's one of the reasons that I started this, this show is because I want people to see that we are, you know, that, that people like you, people like Chris Barber, Tamara Leach, the people you mentioned earlier, that the people who are public are ordinary people doing extraordinary things and they're doing them because they're stepping over their fears. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, I went there with a very small objective and my role as time went on, it, it grew and it was completely and constantly evolving from one week to another week to another week. And I think, there was two things that, that I, I did well. <clears throat> I looked for the right people to help me not do everything, but to help me formulate things and to put other people into decisions where they had to make decisions. Okay. And that's a, that's a tough thing to do, like to compile a strategy, put it into a, a, a cohesive sort of plan and brief other people and say, this is the plan that I think you should go with. And this is why. And they look at it and say, yes, no, maybe, or modify this, or definitely don't do that. You know, I talk about the, the plan that Randy Hillier and I had to park tractors on the front lawn of the Supreme court, you know, within about 30 seconds, Eva Chippy, you exact, like she explained to me why I wasn't going to do that. But I had been working on that for about two days. You know, this was something I was absolutely going to do. But as a check, I found the smart person who could give me the best advice. And then I listened to the advice. You know, that's an important thing too. Like I, I didn't have to go in there and say, oh, I'm, I'm in charge here. No, you, you have to recognize that there's a lot of smart people out there with some good ideas, some great ideas. You just have to be able to mold it into some sort of plan of action that other people can get behind. Um, you know, and the other thing I did is I was always self-checking, you know, am I doing the right thing? Is this about Tom? Is this about glory or is this about the convoy and doing the right thing? Should I, have I taken it as far as I can, should I now step aside and let someone else do it? Am I a hindrance or am I still contributing? So I, I did that fairly regularly. You know, it, it was an important thing because I didn't want to be the reason. I didn't want my ego to be the reason why this thing failed. You know, and that comes a lot from my military training. You know, because ego gets people hurt. Oh my, in so many ways. <laughs> mm -hmm. yes. Well, I yes. want to thank you, Tom, for 
everything you've done. I want to thank you for the honesty, the authenticity that you bring to the table and for laying it all out and, and for this historical document, really. So I encourage people to get and buy, buy a copy. <laughs> Not just the library, buy a copy of the People's Emergency Act. And, and uh, yeah, this is a, a piece of Canadian history and I thank you for being a part of it. Yeah, thank you. I, I'm glad I was a part of it. And I'm glad that I finally published the book and, and gave people really, I, I hope that I answered a lot of the questions that people had that that they had always wondered about. So thank you. Thank you for this conversation. Yes, thank you for having me. So many of us look outside of ourselves for others to have the answers, or to stand up on our behalf and take the lead. But what Canada's Freedom Convoy demonstrated was that ordinary people have the power within themselves to cause change beyond themselves, beyond ourselves. For those who were there in person and even in spirit, something changed. We were changed. We realized that we were not alone and we were not helpless. We can vote not only with a ballot, but with our feet and with our dollars. And after my next episode, I'm going to share something specific about how we can all do that. I became very interested in what it was that has some people stand up and step out. And what can we all learn from the people who have chosen or been thrust into the public eye? From my conversation with Tom, I took away several lessons. Among them are these. Number one, standing up for what we believe in starts with our relationship with ourselves. It's like putting the oxygen mask on ourselves first. If we build our own personal confidence, it becomes easier to step over our fears and act with courage in the face of whatever anybody thinks. Number two, consistent with starting with ourselves, it's never been more important to invest in ourselves, to develop skills that allow us to be independent, resourceful, and resilient. And number three, taking responsibility for others for the bigger picture helps to manage our personal self-destruct impulse. If Tom or anyone had succumbed to violence, a very different picture would have emerged from the Freedom Convoy. It's easy to let our egos run roughshod over reason. Real leadership demands control of our impulses, our emotions, and sometimes even our personal opinions. In taking on leadership roles, we are required to expand our vision, to see from a bird's eye view and take action consistent with that bigger picture. As a result, we find that we are expanding, that we are more than our personal opinions, that we are part of something, we are one expression of the human race. There's so much opportunity to grow in these challenging times. I'd like these conversations to be more than just something to listen to, but to be something we mine for bits of wisdom, for ways to grow our own capacity to lead. I'd love to know what lessons you're taking away from this conversation. And if you're watching or listening on a platform with a comment section, please do share. I hope you've enjoyed this inaugural episode and that you'll join me again. Stay tuned, be true to yourself, and remember that we are the ones we've been waiting for. Thank you.